0: Psalm 4. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone O Lord make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're in the middle of a brief series in the first 5 Psalms here in the book of Psalms and so far I just want to give you a little recap. We've what we've noticed and what we've learned is we've learned how to receive God's blessing. If you remember, when we looked at Psalm 1, we learned that it's through meditating on God's Word that we receive His blessing, and that in Psalm 2, it's through receiving God's Messiah, finding a refuge in Him that we receive God's blessing. In other words, what we learn right from the beginning of the book of Psalms is that we don't know what to say, And we need a word from the outside. That's Psalm 1. But not only that, we often find ourselves fearful, anxious, faced with opposition, difficulty, trial. And we need God to intervene. That's God's Messiah. You learn about that in Psalm 2. Then a couple weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 3, which is actually the very first prayer we come to in the book of Psalms. And it's nothing but an utter cry for help. It's a cry for distress. And in fact, the first psalm we come to in the whole book of Psalms that could be considered a psalm of or prayer of praise isn't till Psalm eight, which ought to tell you something. That the book of prayer in the Bible begins with a series of psalms of distress. That's where prayer begins. Out of our own experience, we noticed in Psalm 3, it's a psalm of David when he's fled from his own son. It's a psalm all about David's tragedy and his triumph. The chaos of his life. And he prays out of the middle of that. And that's where we find ourselves when we pray. But I want you to notice too, just by way of reminder, that in the middle of Psalm 3 we realize that David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. That in the very middle of this distress, there is a possibility of normal life, of being able to lie down and go to sleep and wake up again. That God creates space, relief in the midst of our distress. There's a rhythm here. Of lying down, of waking up. And the question is, how do you enter into that rhythm? The answer to that is found in Psalm 4 and 5. Psalm 4 is a evening prayer. It's a prayer for the end of your day. Psalm 5 is a prayer for the beginning of your day. It's a morning prayer. And see, we need these words. These words of in the evening and in the morning that lead us to peaceful rest as our day comes to a close, and then words that prepare us for action when we wake up again in the morning. Psalm 4 and 5 is an evening prayer and a morning prayer that cultivate in us both a passive and active faith, a stopping and going, rest and work, trust and hope. And the first part of this this God-shaped rhythm of evening and morning, of rest and work. It begins with prayer. So I first want to look with you this week at Psalm 4 as an evening prayer that speaks to the end of our day. It speaks to the transition from working and going, from projects and deadlines, from people and conversations, successes and failures, fears and anxieties, doubts and insecurities, all of those, transitioning from those to peaceful, uninterrupted, soul-refreshing rest. Now, I don't know about you, but that almost never happens for me. (laughs) That is an elusive rhythm, many of the days that I experience. But nevertheless, that's why we have this psalm, because God wants you to have that rhythm, to find the path to that peace. And before we look at this psalm, in more detail, I just want to do a little bit of a Bible study thing with you. I want to show you the structure, the way this psalm is organized, okay? Think of it like this. If you're a note taker, this may help you later. Think of psalm, or verse 1 and verse 8. Those go together. Those are the beginning and the end. The preface and the conclusion. And then if you look at verses 2 and 3 and verses 6 and 7. Verse 2 and 3 is the first contrast There's a tension there And then there's a second contrast In verses 6 and 7 Then at the very center of the psalm Verses 4 and 5 We find three action phrases Which I'm going to talk about in a minute That help you practice this path to peace How do you get this peace? So now, verse 1 and 8, beginning and end. Verses 2 and 3, 6 and 7, there's tension. There's two contrasts. Verses 4 and 5 will help us navigate those tensions and those contrasts. Okay? So here's how I want to work through this psalm with you. How do we work through from our distress in verse 1 to this peace in verse 8? We need First, to look at the path to peace. Where do we begin? And where does it end? Then we're going to look at the struggle for peace. Why is it so elusive? And then we'll end with the practice of peace. How do we get this peace that God gives? So first, let's look at the path to peace. Taken in isolation, look at verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Then jump down right away to verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. That is an amazing transition. I don't don't know about you, but uh, this is a pretty radical change. From this cry of distress to I will lie down in peace. And in my home, this is a, a constant struggle. I don't know if this is true for you or not, but I have the hardest time. Leaving my day and coming home. Transitioning. Transitions are hard of all kinds. If you've ever moved somewhere, transitioning is hard. Find a new doctor, find a new grocery stores, find a new friends, find a new church. Transitions are hard. Transitioning out of your day, especially if it's a day full of distress and chaos and angst, to being able to exhale, being able to turn off your mind. Being able to go to sleep and actually wake up refreshed. The older you get, the harder that is. But this psalm puts in front of us the possibility of this. It gives us a path to this peace. But where does this path begin? It begins with remembering God's work in the past. Look in verse 1. David, after this cry of distress, he says... You have given me relief when I was in distress. The path to the peace that this psalm puts in front of us begins with remembering God's work in the past. And He says here, "You've given me relief." That that word translated relief has uh, it, it can be translated to give space, clear out room, to no longer be hemmed in or trapped. I venture to guess that many of you feel that way. There's pressure. There's pressure to perform. There's pressure to do. There's pressure not to do. The sense of being trapped, of hemmed in, without any room to move is one I think is, that's a common experience. And David here says, God has given him in the past room to breathe, room to move. In the midst of all of those things. That vie for your attention, that vie for your energy, that vie for your affections, there's relief. And not only does he have this experience that drives him to remember it, that this remembering these past works of God, it taps into... A much bigger rhythm that God shows us in the Bible. That God brings peace out of distress. He brings order out of chaos. And I think the way that David in the psalm writer gives us an, a picture of this big picture work of God. Is in, in this language of an evening prayer and a morning prayer. Of going to sleep, waking up. Think for a moment. Does that remind you of anything? Is it an echo of anything? That's actually an echo of the very first chapter of the book of the Bible. Of Genesis chapter 1. When God brings order out of chaos. In the very beginning of the Bible, here is what we read. The earth was without form and void. And God said, let there be. And there was evening and there was morning. Every day of creation ends with there was evening and there was morning. Following God's creative work. That's a little different than we tend to think, or at least I tend to think. I tend to think of morning and then evening. But the way that the Bible speaks to us is to begin to think about God bringing order out of chaos in the midst of your distress. Then there was evening, then there was morning. One writer puts it like this, that the pre-Genesis condition of the cosmos is our own inner life. It's without form and void. There is darkness. Things are not right. We are not right. Our emotions bolt and stampede. Our thoughts run riot. Our bodies hurt. Our appetites play havoc with our virtue. We can't, it seems, direct our own destiny with dignity or wisdom for ten consecutive minutes. So what we see in this psalm, the same rhythms that God uses to bring His will into being in creation, is the same rhythm He uses to work His will in us, in you and me. The evening and morning pattern of prayer Connects us with God and His power to bring peace and purpose, order and beauty out of the chaos and distress of our lives. Not only does this begin with remembering God's works in the past, I want you to see how remembering, when David remembers God's works in the past, it stimulates faith. And it stimulates his faith in two basic ways. In verse 1, David calls out to God as the God of his righteousness. And then in verse 8, the God of his safety. That remembering God's works of the past stimulates faith. It reminds us who it is we confess. Who it is that you trust in. What kind of God he is. And David tells us, he is the God of my righteousness. Righteousness. Which is another way of saying that God sees everything in your life. He takes note. Nothing escapes him. Everything is at his fingertips. He is a God who sees right and wrong. And he will not let injustice, injustice, he will not let suffering, mistreatment go on forever. He sees it. And David cries out, O God of my right, of my righteousness. In other words, David at the very beginning professes his faith that God is not indifferent, that he cares about right and wrong. He cares about your struggles and your distress. And then in verse 8, it's mirrored with God of my safety. You alone make me dwell in safety. This is not only talks about God's justice, but now God's power. Only God, according to David, has the power to help him, to make him dwell in safety. Here David tells us, not just that God enables him to dwell in safety, but think about this for a moment. What is implied when David says, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety? As I was reflecting on this 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 is how I think What's implied here There are many times When I may be out late at night And Meg is at home My wife with the boys We might have an alarm With ADT All the doors might be locked She is technically Dwelling in safety But I rest assured And you should too She does not feel safe She does not dwell in safety But when I am there, and I am not, I mean, it's not like I'm going to do anything. I'm not that big. I'm not that strong. But my presence is what frees her to dwell in safety. So when David says, you alone, oh God, make me dwell in safety. He's saying on the first, on on the one hand, you have the power to make that happen. And number two, you're the kind of God, in fact, you're the only God who's present with me. I need your presence and you you are present with me and therefore you make me dwell in safety but as we've seen from this path to peace it begins with God and it ends with God in verse 8 verse 1 and verse 8 but there's a huge transition as we've said between these two verses these transitions are hard the path from distress to peace is not easy. And in fact, as we'll see here, it passes through two of the most tender and vulnerable parts of our lives. The first one is who we are, and the second is what we believe. So we're going to look at these two contrasts we mentioned earlier. First, let's look at the struggle for peace, and looking at verse 2 and 3. oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. There's a contrast here. There's a struggle here. It's a struggle over who you are in the eyes of other people versus the eyes of God. It's the the tension, the contrast, the wrestling, the struggle here for peace in your life is over the opinion or the status of others versus The opinion and status of God. What is the opinion, what what is others' opinion of you and what status do you have with them? What is God's opinion of you and what is your status with Him? That's what's at stake here. When he talks about, in verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Have you ever been fundamentally misunderstood and you had to let it go? Or have you ever been fundamentally misunderstood and you could not let it go and it haunted you and you schemed and you thought and you struggled, how can I right that misunderstanding? Have you ever had somebody misrepresent you falsely? They shamed you. They said lies about you. Have you ever done that to someone else? There is no shortage of feeling exposed, misunderstood, misrepresented. And when your identity, your fundamental identity of who you are is grounded in those opinions, you will never have peace. And the reason is... Because your performance, getting those people to see you as you want to be seen, will be your lifelong ambition, and you will never succeed. Even if you do get their opinion, you will spend the rest of your life keeping that opinion. But what happens when, in verse 3... David says, No, that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. You see, David is contrasting here his status with other people, or their opinion of him, with his status with God, God's opinion of him. That God sets people apart for his own possession. And it's important that you hear this because David says the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And it would be very easy, especially in our our culture context, to hear that word godly and think, oh, this is, God just sets apart the good people. The people who do what they're supposed to, the moral people. And I, I need to tell you that that is not at all what the Bible means by godly. When the Bible uses the word godly or in the New Testament the word saints, it universally means those people saved by grace. Undeserving sinners who have received unmerited favor by the free grace of God. Not because of anything they've ever done. That's a godly person. It's not about what they offer, it's about what they've received that makes a person godly in David here says God sets apart people for his own possession who don't deserve it that's a new status that's an opinion that God that no one can take away from you because it's a gift it's a status that no one can take away from you because it's a gift that's the first struggle here the struggle over who you are that David steps right into and confronts us with and begins to help us to navigate through. And I want you to think about this. Here's a question for you. Perhaps you can jot it down and and ponder this this week. As you think about this tension of the status and opinion of others versus the status and opinion that God gives, from whom do you derive your deepest sense of identity? From whom do you derive your deepest sense of identity? From God or the opinion of others. So that's the first struggle. The second struggle is over what you believe in the face of doubts and skepticism. Look at verse 6 and 7. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now, as as I read these verses, there's... Sometimes it's hard to figure out who's talking and to whom. And let me just try to break it down for you like this. I think the verse in verse 6, the entire verse comes from the lips of, of those that David says, The many who say. In verse 7 is David's response to those who say. Okay? That's how we're going to proceed through this. That's the contrast. It's the many who say... Who will give us some good? Who will show us some good? And then David saying, you have put more joy in my heart. Here's what's going on. Many who say, give us some good. Who will give us some good? These are the kinds of people, not excluding any of us, okay? This does include us. These are people like us who look to the gifts more than the giver. who see and wait for the benefits that the benefactor gives, are more interested in what he gives than the one who gives it. Notice how verse 7, verse 6, puts God in a corner and basically says, prove it. Prove it to me. Prove it to me that I should trust you. Prove it to me that you can give me what I need. Prove it to me that you are the god that i need. Verse 6 describes God as a means to an end, not God as an end in himself. However, in contrast, in verse 7, David says you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. These are this is David saying he finds his deepest joy in God himself not in what God provides. See, here's a contrast in these two verses between inward spiritual joy versus outward circumstantial joy. Notice, in verse 7, David does not say that circumstances are bad. Good circumstances are bad. It's not what he says at all. But what he's saying is that God puts more joy in his heart than any earthly good he could receive. The true joy that he talks about here is a gift that must be received. It can't be demanded. This is where doubts and skepticism come in. Because almost all unbelief comes from a posture of God, I won't believe you unless fill in the blank. David presents us with a perspective and a view of joy and trust that says, God, help me to trust you with what i don't understand perhaps here's a way to ask yourself a question from what do you derive your greatest sense of assurance the joy that god gives you or the joy that you demand let me let me put it again from what do you derive your greatest sense of assurance the joy that god gives or the joy that you demand You see, the psalm writer here, in these contrasts of 2 and 3 and 6 and 7, he's teaching us how to reflect on the struggles that we experience in trying to find peace. He's given us words to use on this journey, on this path, to find the peace that we see in verse 8. We face these struggles every day. However, even as we reflect on these contrasts and the internal struggles they expose, they actually lead us to relinquish control and progress down the path to peace found in the status and the joy that God alone can give. And how do we do that? What does it look like to reflect on these struggles? Let's look at verse 4 and 5 and then we'll be done. Let's look at this for the, the practice of peace. Look at real quickly. Let me give you what he says here and then unpack it a little bit. In verse 4, he says, be angry but don't sin. Be angry but don't sin. The second direction he he gives is ponder and be silent. Ponder and be silent. And the last is offer and trust. Okay? Be angry, don't sin. Ponder, be silent. Offer and trust. First, be angry, but do not sin. Some of you, you might hear an echo of Ephesians 4.29 in that. Be angry, but don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is where Paul got it from, is Psalm 4. What's meant here by this phrase, be angry, it can also be translated as to tremble, to be wary. To be angry means to fare squarely the worst of the day. Whether it's things that you've done or others have done. No day is perfect and some things always go wrong. Many of those things go wrong out of spite or malice or blasphemy. When he says here, be angry, he's saying, look at the day in its raw form. Where things are not right, you should be angry about that. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't make excuses for yourself or other people. See it for what it really is. If you've ever felt like Christianity is not realistic, this these few things here should dispel that for you. Here he is saying, do not make excuses. Do not make things look better than they really are. But also don't make things look worse than they really are. See them for what they really are. But do not sin. In other words, one writer, I thought, put it very helpfully. He says, your anger... It's not a work agenda to plan a vengeance that will fix the wrong. So, when you're angry, and there is a place for just anger, how do you not? Sin. Don't allow your anger to become a tool of your own using to make things right. Be angry, but don't sin. Anger can quickly turn into an agenda to get back. An agenda to make things work the way you want them to work. And here he's saying, be angry but do not sin. But second, he says, ponder and be silent. In fact, we could say, be angry but don't sin. Instead of sinning, ponder and be silent. It says, ponder in your own hearts on your bed. In other words, think things through in private. Don't just be angry, but consider the thoughts and emotions that you're experiencing. Ask yourself, why? Why do I feel this way? Here is a passage that many of us need. Sometimes you need to take a look inside. You need to ask yourself, why do I feel this way? Why am I so outraged? Why am I so distressed? Where is that coming from? Because if you're like me, we spend the whole day ignoring those things. You kind of have to to function. But you also become a shell of a human being. God didn't just make you to do things. He made you flesh and blood to feel and to think. Ponder on your own beds. Ponder in your hearts. At the end of the day, you need to get reacquainted with the person God Is gathering up into salvation And then be silent Resist the temptation to let yourself off the hook Resist the temptation to go get busy again Be silent And then last he says Offer and trust Offer right sacrifices he says What does that mean? It means pay careful attention to to God's way of relating to you Throughout the entire Old Testament, the sacrificial system was at the heart of how God relates to his people. It meant that something had to go between us and God. Things weren't right. And we need to offer right sacrifices. What does it mean to offer a right sacrifice? It doesn't just mean to do the sacrificial system, it means to give God your heart. It means to come to Him with a broken and contrite spirit. That's what a right sacrifice is in the Bible. That's what it looks like for us to offer right sacrifices. Then He says, and put your trust in the Lord. Why does He say that? Because every sacrifice you and I offer is imperfect. Every sacrifice you and I offer calls for a better sacrifice. For a true sacrifice, a sacrifice that brings to end all sacrifices. Which is what leads us straight to the cross. That the right sacrifice that you and I need is found not in goats and bulls and shed blood on an altar. But it's the beloved Son of God hanging on the cross. Without blemish. Perfect Who did everything that you and I should have done and should do. And suffered the death that every one of you and I in this room deserve. That is the sacrifice. That is the right sacrifice that we all need. Now, why is that good news? Why do you need to hear that? Why is that a part of and central to this path to peace? The reason that it's central is because the only way you can pray an evening prayer and go to sleep at night is if you are able to walk away from your day and entrust it to God to make something beautiful out of it. And the only reason you can have confidence that God can take your life, your successes, your failures, your tragedies, your triumphs, and make them beautiful it's because Jesus has come; He has risen from the dead. Let me give you an example. If, if uh, for, for me, here's how this works. I'll make I'll just. I'll give you a personal example. There, there doesn't isn't a day that goes by that I don't go to bed with guilt and shame over failure as a father. There's not a day that goes by, and yet, what is my only hope? My only hope is that Jesus rose from the dead. My hope is not that I will be a better father. Though I certainly hope I do become that. My hope is that the gospel will win in the midst of my failure. In the midst of my yelling at my kids. In the midst of those moments where I have to go to them and say, Son, will you forgive me? I have to trust the Lord. In other words, I can't offer a right sacrifice. Jesus is the only right sacrifice and God offered him for me. And until that penny drops, until your heart is melted by that good news, we will never finish this path from distress to peace. But when that penny drops you will find yourself transitioning at the end of the day being able to let go of the day to pray this evening prayer to enter into this rhythm that God gives of there is evening and then there is morning. So this psalm teaches us the path to peace that begins and ends with God helps us to deal with the struggle for peace about who you really are, what you really believe. And teaches us how to practice it. Be angry, but don't sin. Ponder and be silent. Offer and entrust yourself to the God of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm and this passage. Thank you that you give us such concrete ways to think about our own lives. Thank you for speaking into our lives of distress and chaos and leading us from that distress to peace. Father, it's hard. And we, we really are not good at it. We often don't know how to do it. Sometimes we don't even want to do it. It feels better to cling and control and grasp and try to piece it together for ourselves. But Father, we need this peace. And we need the peace that you've given that surpasses all understanding that we find in Jesus. Father, please work it into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's continue to pray and worship with this prayer of offering. Feel free to pray it with me. Father in heaven, every good and perfect gift comes from you. You delight to meet the needs of your people. However, we are often anxious about whether we will have enough. Father, You know our hearts, and we pray for generous hearts, renewed by the gospel of grace. As we give back to You a portion of that which You have given us, help us to do so out of love for You, compassion for our neighbor, and a longing to see Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.